Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July 6, 2015. This is episode 1604 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Monday, and we're sort of back into the main schedule and doing a listener feedback show on a Monday, like we're supposed to do. The other side of that is it's a short week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I will be gone Thursday through the following week, um, going on vacation, real vacation. It's like real vacation where I actually don't work and... Uh, don't run an event or don't do anything like that. Just like lay on the beach, fish, and have a few adult beverages here and there. That's the plan, guys. So, uh, again, I never like leaving you without a show for that long. But in this instance, that's the way it's going to have to be. We all need to recharge at times. And uh, what I would suggest is you consider listening to random episodes. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on listen to a random episode with over 1,600 episodes. There's probably one you haven't heard before, or you at least haven't heard in a while. If you can think of it, we've probably covered it. Uh, remember, also use the search box feature for stuff like that. If you're thinking, I want to listen to a show about fill-in-the-blank, then type fill-in-the-blank, but fill-the-blank in. Don't just... You got it, right? In the search box, and there's a tag cloud and all kinds of good stuff to find old episodes. Anyway, uh, before we get into today's uh, stuff, which is all your feedback to me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, then make sure you put TSPC in the subject line and you have a better chance of getting on a show like today. Uh, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and help make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consult and the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it. But you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody that doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor number two today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Shockingly enough, you can get Berkey water filtration systems from Jeff because he is the Berkey guy, the actual one, the only Berkey guy. There's a lot of places you can get a Berkey, but I only know of one Berkey guy, and I only know of one person with Jeff's fanatical dedication to his customers. Absolutely beyond belief how dedicated to customer service Jeff is and to making sure everybody gets uh, what they were expecting, and if there's a problem, it gets corrected fast 
and properly. Uh, Jeff's been with me as a sponsor for more than five years now. That's kind of unheard of in podcasting. It's really kind of unheard of in conventional radio, if you really think about it, to have sponsors stick with somebody that long. He does a great job for this audience. I, I haven't had any real complaints about him in five years. I had one person mad, but it was well, the post office did it, and there's only so much a person can do about the post office. Um, Jeff just takes care of everybody, and he has the, some of the best pricing available because those years of great customer service have made him one of the top distributors for Berkey in the world. So he gets some really great pricing that he passes along to you. He also has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find all his Berkey stuff and all his other great stuff, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods at his website, directive21.com. Again, the website for Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, directive, and the number's 21, followed by a dot and a com. Check him out today, and don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could deal with the original, the one and only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year being 1604, because the episode is 1604. The awesome Alex Shrugged has uh, some cool ones uh, queued up for us today. We have, first, the time of troubles and a moving response to disaster. We have the English Dictionary Goes Alphabetical, and we have Cheating Satan of His Desire, Coffee and Crawlers. Uh, the Dictionary one and the Cheating Satan ones are really cool, including the kind of the, the origin of coffee being as popular as it is today. But um, I'm going to read the time of troubles and a moving response to disaster because it pertains to a lot of what we prepare for in our modern day. In 1600, a volcano in Peru blew sky high, leaving a two-mile-wide crater. Massive amounts of sulfur were spewed into the stratosphere, causing global temperatures to drop just before summer. In Russia, crop failures became the rule, causing massive famine, cannibalism, and roaming bands of looters. An estimated two million people died. The Russians called it the Time of Troubles, which will bring the Romanov dynasty to power in 1613. Outside of Russia, unseasonably stormy weather reduced crop yields and delayed the ripening of fruit trees. Now the world begins its recovery yet again. Volcanic eruptions can have destructive consequences. 400 years ago, the option to prepare for such disasters were limited. In the modern day, our options are more promising. My take by Alex Shrug. For your information, in 1601, America had a cooler-than-normal summer, but no devastating crop failures. It was tough but manageable. Japan reported later the average blooming of their fruit trees. Uh, Western Europe certainly uh, re reported later than average blooming of their fruit trees. Western Europe certainly suffered not as much as the Russian people did. Unlike modern-day movie depictions of global climate disaster, some places make out okay. Even during the Great Famine of 1315, while people in London were eating their own children, there was plenty of food in southern Italy. Now that'll put it in perspective for you, won't it? The problem was transporting the food from where it was plentiful to where it was needed at a reasonable price. In the 1300s, they couldn't do that very well. Today, we can. We're also more mobile, so that we can, we so that that even though we can't do much about a volcano's destruction, we can get out of its way. Don't get too discouraged unless you're living in Tacoma, Washington. Anyone living along the probable path of destruction of Mount Rainier needs a bus ticket. Not a cellar fixed with survival seeds, nor mason jars filled with five bean chili. When an obvious disaster is looming, often the best thing to do is move out of its way. Yeah, you know, there's an old thing in the prepper world, the debate, do you bug out or do you bug in? And the, the answer is very, very simple. You do whichever increases your odds of survival. 
uh, in a lot of cases, bugging in is the smart choice in, in the prepping world. It really is. And most disasters are relatively short-term, and if you're well-prepared, then bugging in is basically staying out of the way because the disaster is, you know, depending on how things come out, usually it's the aftermath that's worse than the disaster itself. If uh, something causes uh, people to start rioting and what have you, the best way to stay out of trouble is stay out of the way of the people that are rioting, stay home where you have a good defensible position, and wait for things to settle back down. Uh, but if a volcano is about to explode or a nuclear power plant is in meltdown or something like that, then you get the hell out of Dodge. That's my take by Jack Spierko. My other thing is, this is what I think we just don't get about climate change. I really don't. Everybody's so paranoid that the, the Earth is going to warm by one degree, and then the, 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 everything's going to explode or something. It's just preposterous. And I've given my thoughts on, on climate change before, so I, I won't rehash them here. But what I will tell you, that the flat reality is, we have far more to fear by the Earth cooling a degree or two than we do by it warming a degree or two. And if you look through the history of mankind, as back as far as there are, are records on it, it is always a cooling trend that causes the most death and destruction to humanity. doesn't matter what you believe politically or scientifically about climate change, that's the reality on the ground. And believe it or not, we could be looking at a cooling trend in the future. One like this, probably not, unless, oh, I don't know, a couple mountains blow their tops. It is interesting to realize we're the worst of the worst climate problems were during this time, though. Russia, specifically central Russia, continental climates. The New World got away with it. I'll tell you why more than, than any other reason. Uh, it wasn't really deeply settled inland yet. Uh, oceans moderate climates, and... That's why most of the rest of civilization did okay. The Russians have always had to deal with the harshness of continental climates and lacking of seaports, etc. There's a lot of wars fought over that that we'll get to in the future, I'm sure. But the further inland you are, the more extreme your winters are going to be. And sometimes the more extreme your summers will be relative to your latitude as well. Just something to think about as you're choosing where you really want to live. All right, with that... Uh, let's go ahead and remind you guys real quick before I take your first bit of feedback today that you can help support this show by joining the Members Support Brigade. If you join the MSB or Members Support Brigade, you'll help support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode, which if you think the show's worth you know, 20 cents an episode, it's worth doing. On top of it, though, I get you discounts to so many things you're probably buying every year anyway. Most people find that their membership more than pays for itself. So if you can support this show and get discounts that pay for your membership or make it profitable, it just kind of makes sense. If you love this show and you want it to be around forever, think about that and consider becoming a member today. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. And uh, if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, active duty, or prior service, you qualify for a service discount. Email me with service discount TSPC in the subject line. One sentence telling me about your service, and I'll email you back a discount code to save you even more money on an already great product. And I'd just like to take a moment right now just to say thank you to all of you who have supported me over the years and continue to do so. Without you, this show could not be what it is today. Thank you very much. With you know, It's just a important thing that I stop and say that once in a while, especially right now, realizing that, you know, just a week ago, we crossed seven years, seven years of TSP together. Thank you to all of you. Anyway, with that, um, let's get into your feedback to today's show. And um, 
Now, this first one, I, I'm going to temper this before I even read it to you, because I'm going to tell you that I don't think the majority of people that are on various welfare programs and government assistance actually think it out this detailed. But this is a plausible scenario that could occur, uh, gaming our current welfare system, and probably more than one person has done it this well. Um, though there's a few things that are maybe assumed that aren't quite as true as, as you would expect. So here's uh, from Robert. He says, for a guy and his girlfriend with two kids in our current welfare state, Number one, don't get married. Number two, use your mom's address to get the mail. So that would be the father. The guy buys a house. The guy rents out the house to his girlfriend. He has two of his kids. Section A will pay $900 a month for a three-bedroom house. Girlfriend signs up for Obamacare so a guy doesn't have to pay for family insurance. Girl gets to go to college for free by being a single mother. Girlfriend gets $600 a month in food stamps. Girlfriend gets free cell phone. Girlfriend gets free utilities. Guy moves into home but continues to use mom's house to get mail sent to. Girlfriend claims one kid and guy claims one kid on taxes. Now you both get to claim head of household and an $1,800 credit. Girlfriend gets disability for being crazy or having a bad back at $1,800 a month and never has to work again. The plan is perfectly legal and being executed now by millions of people. A married couple with stay-at-home mom yields zero dollars. An unmarried couple with a stay-at-home mom yet nets twenty-one six in disability, eight ten eight in free housing, six thousand in free Obamacare, six thousand in free food plus, forty-eight hundred in free utilities, six thousand uh, Pell Grant money plus to spend, twelve thousand a year in college tuition free for uh, Pell Grant plus, eighty-eight hundred tax benefit for single mothers, seventy-five thousand a year in benefits. That's not including WIC and charity from different organizations. I think this has been stretched a little, just to be completely honest. Uh, for instance, you don't just decide that your house can be rented to somebody and who you want it to rent to and how it's going to be Section 8. Um, a house being considered or an apartment being considered Section 8 is a more complex decision. And when a person moves into housing for Section 8, they don't say, I want this house and now you guys on Section 8 pay it for me. It doesn't work that way. A person getting this type of housing is told, here's a house you can go look at, or here's an apartment you can go look at, and they get to look at, I think, two or three. They don't want the first one. They say, There's, you know, really don't want to live there. And here's another one you can live in. And I think after two, if you say no twice, or it might be three times, then you go to the bottom of the list and wait to come up again. So this entire scenario cannot be run exactly the way it's determined. Free cell phone, not the way you would think. The, the, the free cell phone thing, people call it Obama phone, it goes back to a plan under Ronald Reagan. It goes back to a plan under Ronald Reagan, and it's become cell phones. It started out as landline phones. And it's not, you know, your data plan with five gigs and your AT&T iPhone and all that, that somebody gets when they're on these assists. But they do get a phone, and, it, and the base price of the phone is paid for. Uh, there's several, several companies that actually do it and advertise for it, by the way, to make sure you get your benefits that you have coming to you, by the way. So when we, when we look at these things, we have to be careful, okay, that we don't get sucked in because here's the problem. When you put something out like this and someone that's, you know, you know, remotely willing to do any research does and finds out, well, that's not true and that's not true and that's exaggerated, it discredits the whole thing. And that's too bad that we live in a world like that. Where instead of saying, well, here's the things that we maybe would tighten up on this, but is the overall meme true? And it is. It is true. Um, 
and here I think is what we need to really look at. Instead of like who's abusing the system, if we're doing anything with financial incentives, then that means that we're incentivizing certain behaviors. And if we incentivize a behavior financially, we are going to get more of it. Okay? I mean, that just makes sense, doesn't it? If I, right now, I don't think there's probably a lot of people running around smacking themselves in the balls. I guess men would be the ones limited to doing this, but just running around out in public and just smacking themselves in the balls. But yeah, people do things that get themselves injured and hurt that way to get on YouTube because if they get a million views, they might make some money, right? Well, what if we just said, if, if you run out and smack yourself really hard in the balls like twice a day and have it documented, and at the end of the week, we'll pay you a hundred bucks. Now, there's a lot of us that would go, man, my... My, my, my two brothers downstairs are worth more than, than, than a hundred bucks a week, but you'd get a lot of pe a lot more people doing it now than you, you know, than you have. Now, you might wonder why I'm being so ridiculous, because my point is if that small amount of money to do something that uncomfortable would create more of that behavior, what is a significant amount of money to do something that really isn't uncomfortable do? So, right now, if you are, especially if you are a, a, a man, in a relationship with a woman who has children from a different father. Because oh. that's not even how the scenario was written. If that's who you are, if you're a man in a relationship with a woman who has children from a different father, and she's on any type of government assistance as a single mother, and he's on any kind of gotcha where he has to pay her alimony and or child support, then fight not ethically, Not morally, that's not what I'm saying, so don't misconstrue me. But financially, you are a fool to marry that girl. You really are. Finan just, just pure running the numbers. Because, and if you make decent money, let's say you're a good, hardworking, honest guy, busting your ass, making $60,000, $70,000 a year. You, you, you have to be out of your mind to marry that woman. Financially. okay? Because I'm the guy that did it. All right. Um, and my son is the man that's about to step up and and follow in my example and do it again. So I think ethically and morally, if you want to be with somebody, then it makes sense to you know form that bond the way that you choose to. And if that's through marriage, then that's through marriage, and that's fine. So I'm not saying that you're an idiot for doing it. I'm saying that numbers wise only. If we only judge that with numbers, so do you think that there's people out there that don't have a moral or ethical problem? cohabitating with someone, even considering themselves married between themselves, but just not telling the state that so that they can keep this position in place. Now, see, the thing is, we had a lot of debate about marriage lately, but we haven't really talked about what is the benefit of marriage to society. You notice we didn't have that discussion at all during this debate. By the way, for all of you that I got on for not having a cogent argument, other than God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, which was the argument I got from most of you about this, that was actually the one you could have made. That creating stability in the family unit, so there's, so it doesn't really make your case, but it's the closest thing to a logical case you can make. And here's what I mean. If, 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 if Bill and Tom are married and they leave each other or stay together, it doesn't really affect society because they don't have kids. Just to be honest, right? I mean, Stefan Molyneux did a great piece on this that you can look up and watch if you want to. But if, if I have Tom and Sue together and they have three children, Uh, it's no doubt that those three children will be less likely to be a burden to society if the marriage remains intact. So there's actually a benefit to society by keeping families together. Okay, so that's, that's why. Now, I don't actually think that affects the gay marriage debate at all. 
But that's the reason the state's involved. At least it's supposed to be. It's actually become very beneficial to the state for society to be divided. And if you want to divide a society, divide the family. So my question to you is, do our current social programs incentivize or de-incentivize traditional marriage? Leave the gay thing out. Leave. It doesn't apply here. It really doesn't. Leave it on the table, over to the left. Let's let it alone. Just does it incentivize two people to get married today economically in this country? And the answer is it does not, especially if you have children from pre-existing relationships, which there you really would, it would really be good in many instances because there's usually a bad relationship that resulted in those children being born. Not that those children are a bad consequence, but there's a bad relationship usually in that situation. If it was good, they'd be together, right? So a lot of times you have like a deadbeat guy that's out not taking care of his kids, okay? Or somebody that just doesn't give a shit or, or whatever, and you got this woman trying to make it, and a kid with an identity crisis because he doesn't have a real father in his life. And, and that guy stepping in, being the father, and saying, not only am I going to do the things a father does, but I'm going to you know, formally state, I am now the husband in this family, and you are my son or my daughter or my sons and my daughters or whatever. That's, that's very stabilizing for, for a kid. But instead, we've actually made it cost that family significant amounts of money, and we've actually tricked them into believing that that's the case. See, it's not really the case. See, it doesn't cost the money because it's stuff they never had. It costs them getting somebody else's money. So we steal other people's money through taxation. We give it to people in this situation. And then we take it back away when behavior starts to model what we would call a traditional family unit. So we've actually de-incentivized the traditional family unit. And then we look at and go, why are divorce rates so high? Do you not think there's people in our society today that get divorces because... Because it's financially beneficial to do so? I've told my wife several times, financially, I would never do this, but the financial best move I could make would be to divorce her, for us to have a no-fault divorce, for her to say I can keep all my assets, let her continue to work for me for basically minimum wage. I'm a small business, basically a sole proprietorship. I'm not bound by anything. She goes straight in Obamacare, get insurance for next to nothing. Just on insurance alone, we put thousands back in our pocket every year. Just on that. Now, we're not going to do it, but do you understand that's what we're incentivizing with our social designed programs today? Now, this is my bigger question for you. Because you know what I'm going to say if you think, well, we're going to change this. No, you're not. You're not going to change this. This will not change until society changes, and that's going to be a while. Okay? My bigger question, if that's what we're incentivizing, don't you think the people that design the programs know that that's what they're incentivizing? Do you think people that are capable of creating all this shit and the complexities to go with it and all of the social structure around it, all of the jobs and positions and budgets and things that are necessary to make this have a, you know, a, a, a veil of legitimacy, this Robin Hood concept of stealing from those that produce and giving to those who don't produce, do you think they did all this and they're just like, huh, do you, do you guys realize after like 50 years this is what we've done? Or do you think they knew what they were doing all along? Do you think that they knew what they were doing all along? Every single time from this day forward, 
that you want the government to proactively do something. I want you to think about that little fact. And that's the people you're asking to proactively do something. Whether it's your bidding or somebody else's bidding, you're asking people who have systematically destroyed the nuclear family in this country and then have gotten back on a soapbox and convinced you that some social level issue, like two dudes getting married and where they get their cake from, is what's destroyed the social fabric of this country and the marital fabric, and the familial fabric of this country. It's been destroyed by that? No. It's been destroyed by a system that will put twenty, thirty, or $40,000 back in your pocket to not be married. In fact, put twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 in your pocket that was never there to not be married, and then say, oh, but if you do this, we'll take it away, because you don't need it anymore. Now, you know what I think the solution is. We shouldn't be doing this in the first place. I just would like you to think about it. So this is a good email from Robert, even though there were some technical inaccuracies in it. Looks like a totally different question. This was originally sent in to be an expert panel question. I'm going to actually take this one. I, I feel more than qualified to answer it. Uh, the question is basically from uh, from Jesse, and should I carry a handgun on a daily basis? Details, I have. I live in Pennsylvania and have a concealed carry permit for over a year. I've taken a number of training courses over the years and consider myself adequately competent, but not a super expert. Good, you probably won't get yourself killed then. If you consider yourself a super expert, you'll probably get yourself killed at some point. Anyway, I carried concealed on one special occasion, but never on a regular basis. The one occasion was in the midst of moving, and while most of the move I wasn't worried... Uh, when I emptied my safe in the old house and moved my hard valuables to the new house, I donned my inside the waistband holster and loaded up my pistol. Not that there was any specific threat, but because while moving a bunch of valuables, including long case guns, I thought it'd be silly to have someone steal my guns and not have one ready to defend myself. Now, while listening to TSP on a regular basis, I started wondering, wondering should I carry every day just in case? On the one hand, it gives me more options. If something were to happen, I'd have more capabilities. On the other hand, I have an office job, live in a good neighborhood, and have no apparent threats. Perception bias much there, Jesse? I'll, I'll get back to it. Hold on. I, and really don't expect to ever need to carry. I was thinking, I was, I was, I think it was on an old TSP episode that someone said something like, don't go to stupid places with stupid people and do stupid things and you'll avoid a huge amount of problems. That was Frank Sharp Jr., by the way, that said that. I know folks who carry because it's their right and they're bold about that. But for me, the risk of making a mistake, accidentally exposing my weapon, going to a place that's not allowed, seems much more likely than a chance I'll need it. Let's face it, my last physical altercation was in second grade when I fought back against the bully. Now, 40 years later, do I really want to go around armed? So I ask, what is an expert's advice? What should a normal, low-risk individual carry a firearm? Thanks, Jesse. Okay, here's my opinion. Always. If you have the legal right to carry in your state, and you have a gun, and you feel competent with it, the answer to when you should carry should be all the time when legal. Now, there's people that say, we shouldn't even need a concealed carry license, and just get all stupid about this. I agree, but I don't like places like penitentiaries. They're places I'd like to avoid. And if I'm given the ability to do anything, 
without compromising deeply my morals uh, in some kind of twisted way or uh, you know risking my life if I can if I can avoid risking going to the penitentiary without being asked to do something like punch a baby in the face or you know to uh, to, to, to run through flames or to not run through flames when a house is burning or something like that you know I'll, I'll, I'll sort it out later if it's something like that but I mean day to day the fact that I have to you know give 65 bucks or whatever it is to the state every five years for a carry permit, and then I can legally carry, I'm willing to make that compromise because it's the smartest thing to do in this situation. I didn't ask for this situation. I'm not the one that created this situation. It's the one I find myself in. And I find it ironic that the people that always make this, you shouldn't need a license to carry, I refuse to get one, because it, you know, but they pay their income taxes, don't they? So the people that are carrying only because they believe it's their constitutional right, I hope to God they're doing so with the license that the Constitution says they should not need. Because otherwise, you're stupid. If you carry where it is illegal with no permit, and if you get arrested, you're going down for a felony, you are a moron. Stop doing that, stupid. Or you can, you know, tell us how your experiences are on Facebook when they give you some Internet time at the penitentiary. I'm just saying. So, assuming you're carrying legally, the answer should be always. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> when you say things like, I have an office job, live in a good neighborhood, and have no apparent threats, what you're saying is that you've chosen to close your eyes to reality. Absolutely chosen to close your eyes to reality. Um, if you noticed all of the, the like mass shootings that have ever happened, they don't happen like you know on a subway on the south side of Chicago where it's dangerous. They happen in elementary schools. You, you think that it's possible for something to happen in an elementary school but not in your office? Do you, do you go out to eat? Because nobody's ever gone into a restaurant or a cafeteria or something like that and just started shooting. Oh, wait, they have. You pump gas. You put gas in your car. Because it's, it's not like criminals have this routine where they identify people in certain situations and they see them with their wallet and, you know, getting gas at a gas station and using their debit card. And as they're about to put their wallet away, that's right when they hit them. Like, they don't. Oh, wait, they, that is a common tactic of, of thieves and criminals. It's not like criminals go to the, you know, nice neighborhoods where people have lots of stuff and lots of money to break into houses. And it's not like, you know, if that did happen and you were in your easy chair since you have your gun in your safe in the, the room that the criminal wouldn't give you, you know, hey, dude, I, I know I'm not supposed to do this and all, I don't want to break the rules or whatever, but, you know, since you don't have your gun on you, why, why don't I give you a little bit of time to run in the bedroom, get your gun, and then we can do this evenly? Like, that, that would happen. No, that's not how it works. See... <laughs> When you say things like that, you're living in a fantasy world. You're living in a fantasy world. <sighs> I remember when I was a kid and I played soccer. This always stuck with me. Coach came onto the field one day and was kind of upset with us about the level of defense we weren't playing. And said, you know, you're out here for over an hour, all said and done with playing time and he kicks the ball and it just goes through the goal and he said that takes less than a second and, and how you play all the rest of this game is about making that one second not happen 
when it comes time for it to happen. If you're playing defense. Okay. You can spend 10, 20, 30, 40 years of your life never needing to play defense of your life or the life of someone else. But when the time comes, and it might, if the time comes for you, when it does, it is literally a fraction of a second between life and death. And if you have the ability to to do something about that, to improve the odds of your own survival or survival of others, if you carry every day of your life and you never, ever need to use it, when you're an old man and ready to go on to the next level, whatever you think that is for you, and you hand that gun down to a grandchild or something like that, you will never regret having carried, and you will never regret not having to have used it. If you do not carry, and there's ever a time where someone is seriously injured or, or killed, and you could have intervened had you been carrying, you will regret it until you are that old man ready to go on to the next level. Not because you didn't do something, but because you could have done more. And it's one thing to say, well, you know, I should have gotten my permit by now and I didn't, so now I can't carry. And let's say while you're waiting to get your permit or whatever, something happens and you regret that. But at this point, you're talking about a totally different thing. Like, there's nothing preventing you from doing this other than yourself. Or if you're not comfortable carrying the gun you have, then maybe you need to get something that's a little bit more comfortable to carry. But you do not live in a perfectly safe neighborhood. You do not have a perfectly safe job. And you do not have a perfectly safe life. And I'll tell you that the people with the biggest illusions of this are the ones at the greatest risk. Because if I'm a criminal, I'm motivated by one of two things. A pure mental disturbed sickness that makes me like pain. That's one. And that's the minority. That's the psychopaths. And there's more psychopaths in suits than wearing hoodies. I'm just saying, they really are. Psychopaths tend to be high-functioning people. People that actually enjoy profiting at the pain of others generally end up in positions in things like government and high political office and things like the military. And I'm not saying all military people. I'm saying the people that usually end up in control. Okay? That's where psychopaths end up. Because they don't care about hurting people. They only care about themselves. So they're always willing to do what it takes to play the politics to get ahead in those situations. And again, most psychopaths, for some reason, are generally high IQ and high functioning. So the majority of people that have the motivation just to hurt others are wearing a suit and tie somewhere. Or a uniform. And they're not in a hoodie in the street trying to kill you. Which leaves the other reason as being, and not, not every psychopath's in a suit. Some psychopaths are out there doing the, you know, the stuff that you'd expect them to do. But the vast majority are the other reason. You know what the other reason is? Material gain. Money. Stuff. Property. Jewelry. What I can get from you. And what that means is that you are a target when you have a good job, make good money, drive a nice car, live in a nice neighborhood, because you have money. And not only do you have money, because of our sick, twisted, perverted society that we've created, we have created such a class warfare structure that the criminal element that has less has actually been convinced that they don't have 
what they're supposed to have because you have it. As though if you and everybody like you didn't have what you had, they would all have it, which is not how it works. But they believe that now. So now I've got a criminal, someone willing to violate ethics, morals, and principles and do harm for the intent of material gain, generally financial capital gain. And that person's looking for someone to victimize. Well, unless it's another drug dealer that happens to be in the bad area because they have drug money, there ain't a lot of money in these bad areas. Where's all the money? It's where you are. And I think you should be caring as much for the habit of having your weapon on you in your own home as for what could happen to you away from home. I love people say, well, you know, the place I'm most at risk is in my home. I hate to admit it, but yeah, you might be right. So I keep my gun under my nightstand or in a safe next to my door or whatever. Okay, you're outside weed whacking when some thug comes into your house and grabs your wife by the face, smashes her head into the wall, starts rummaging through your shit. You hear a commotion you run in the house. He's in the master bedroom because that's where criminals go because that's where all the shit is. Your wife's laying bleeding on the floor. Your gun is on the other side of him. He's armed. Good luck. But if you carry when you're away from home, you'll probably find yourself carrying at home. Now, I'm not saying any of these things are going to happen to anybody listening to me today. Or that they're going to happen to you, Jesse, in Pennsylvania. What I'm going to say is there's 100,000 people that listen to this show. At least one of you this year will be violently attacked or witness a violent attack. Period. The numbers, the math, say this is the case. And we've heard from people over the years that have either witnessed it or had it happen to them or when I'm happy is when it would have happened to them but they were armed. We've had several stories come in from people in this audience. No one's actually had to shoot anybody, thank God. But one was the guy that came back to his truck under an overpass parked from bad side of town. Four guys like just waiting to rough him up basically think, okay, we got a guy alone. We'll get whatever he has and if nothing else, we'll enjoy ourselves beating the shit out of this guy. Guys are like, you know what guys, you really need to you really need to leave. And they're like, well, don't tell us what we need to do. So he drew his gun, and guess what? They left. Now, what the pessimist would say is, what if they had guns too? Well, then they were stupid for not pulling theirs first, because the guy that has the gun out first is likely the one to end up alive. And it's not what if, it's what happened. If you read the NRA magazine every year, every month, I'm sorry, and you read the Armed Citizen column, the majority of the stories were the Armed Citizen protects themselves or somebody else, no guns are ever fired. The mere presence of a gun is not always the case, but in many times it's sufficient to turn the tide. None of these scum want to get shot. None of them want to be hurt. None of them want that. And hence, they tend to try to stay alive. But I think you should carry all the time, period. And any... Any internal dialogue tells you that you're not at risk is a lie. Because just like that goal on the soccer field, you can beat out there day in, day out, day in, day out. But it always comes down to that one fraction of a second where you either do or you don't. And you probably don't have time to say, hold on, let me go home and get my gun. And again, if you're an old man that carries your whole life, ready to go on the ground, never used your gun, you won't regret it. But I don't think you want to be that old man thinking, if only I had. 
That's my opinion. Let's take another one. Uh, this next one comes from a listener named Gary, who I agree with an awful lot, but I don't know if I agree with here. I'm not really sure what his uh, stance is, so I don't know if I agree with him or not. He said this is an excellent article, and I, I don't necessarily think it is, though it may be excellent for the purpose of discussion. That may be what he means. But I don't agree with the stance of the article. This is on Breitbart, and it says, Time for the states to declare independence from the federal government. It says, uh, Take this Supreme Court decision and shove it. A numerous Mewson poll indicates that a growing number of Americans want state governments to tell the Supreme Court to get out of the business of rewriting laws and telling American citizens how to live their lives. In a new poll, Rasmussen reported the percentage of Americans who want to tell the Supreme Court it does not have the power to rewrite the Affordable Care Act or four sovereign states to authorize gay marriage has increased from 24% to 33% after last week's Constitution-defying decisions by the court. Closer look at the poll results indicates popular sentiment for state defiance of federal government extends beyond the Supreme Court's latest decision. Only 20% of likely voters now consider the federal government a protector of individual liberty, Rasmussen poll finds. 60% see the government as a threat to individual liberty, instead it adds. Take this regulation and shove it, and take this grant and shove it are two additional battle cries which appear to resonate with growing popular sentiment, especially in the flyover country, those 38 states outside the dozen which President Obama won more than 56.2% of the vote in 2012. In descending order for support for Obama, those 12 states are Hawaii, Vermont, New York, and Rhode Island, Maryland, Massachusetts, California, Delaware, New Jersey, Connecticut, Illinois, and Maine, arguably three additional states where President Obama won between 54 and 56.2% of the vote in 2012 could be added to this list, Washington, Oregon, and Michigan. 150 years after the end of the Civil War, it is becoming increasingly clear that there are two Americas, one where the principles of constitutionally limited government and individual liberty are still revered, the other where statism and trampling on individual rights are on the rise. Okay, I want to stop now because I'm ready to vomit. I, I know you, many of you don't see anything wrong with this so far. Okay, <laughs> hailing one side of statism while decrying the other does not make you declaring independence. It does not make you advocating for liberty. What it makes you is a different flavor of statist. And that's where the rest of this goes. This is a pro-Republican piece of propaganda, is what this is. And what it tells me is that my nation is no longer qualified to declare independence. We, we, can't, we can't find our ass with our two hands, let alone declare independence. I, and, and this starts talking about the Tea Party eventually here. The Tea Party, the Tea Party. Well, wait a minute. Let's, let's examine the Tea Party as a case in point of our nation no longer valuing liberty enough to be worthy of declaring independence at this point. Not that we shouldn't be allowed to, that we can't. We, we're not capable. We have no idea what the hell liberty is anymore. The Tea Party started out very, very simply as a movement that was the government spends too much money and takes too much in taxes. We should reduce the size of government and its ability to tax and spend and let things work its way out from there. If we just cut the size of government, the bill to the taxpayers, and the spending of government and live within our means, this nation will be stronger. That was it. How long did it take to get co-opted by the religious right and then eventually the Republican Party itself? About 15 minutes. About 15 minutes. Is, is how long it took. We couldn't hold a cogent, simple idea. That, believe it or not, the majority of people in America would buy that ideology. Now, I don't know if they would buy the reality of it, or we're going to cut spending. Yeah, 10% across the board. Yeah. Okay, so 10% from military. 
oh, can't do that. So maybe we could have got that far. But at least, at least we could have held on for more than 15 minutes to the idea, government's too big, it taxes too much, it spends too much. I went to one of the first Tea Party rallies. I listened to a guy get up on stage. It sounded more like a, 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 a minister than a politician and preach for 25 minutes. I, 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 I shit you not about the sin of sodomy. And I'm like, this is done. This is not going anywhere. Don't care what you believe, but that's not what this was supposed to be about. The American Revolution was fought under a very simple understanding that the 13 states involved were united in the cause to live more freely without the oppression of the crown and set their own rules for their own lives in their own states with a, with a cooperative level, a central level that was designed for the defense of all and not much more. That's the entire, you can listen to, you know, hours and hours of crap about what people were fighting for during the American Revolution. But that's the whole thing. That's the whole, that's how simple. Revolutions, insurrections, declarations of independency are simple or they fail. This country can't agree on the most basic liberties there are right now. We want to fight over which, which type of marriage should the state artificially interfere with. That's the debate. That's the debate. There is not a meaningful, single meaningful word about the reduction of the size and power in government by a single politician today. It's all bull. The only thing, I swear to God, the only thing that's being discussed right now by any of our leaders in government today is exactly how the tit of government is to be presented, who shall suckle from it, how much each shall be permitted to suck, and in what order the sucking shall occur. That is the entire discussion about government today in America. And by the people as well. The people say they want smaller government. No, they don't. No, they don't. Because you wouldn't keep asking government to do things if you wanted less of it. You would start asking government to stop doing things. Okay? So we want the federal government to not interfere with the state's rights to interfere with our lives. What? How are you going to declare independence when the independence you're declaring is, I want a different master? I, I, you keep using the word independence, America. I don't think it means what you think it means. I, and the, the other word I think America keeps using that they don't know what it means anymore is liberty and freedom. Home of the free. Land of the free. Home of the brave. Liberty. Freedom. We have a liberty bell. It has to be real. Okay. <laughs> liberty is for all. Not for all we agree with. Okay. What we have is a nation of cowards. I know you might be angry with me right now. Maybe you're not a coward. If you're not, then you shouldn't be angry with me. The only reason I should anger you is if, if you're behaving like a coward. And most of our country is terrified. They're terrified of freedom. Because it's current, and I, I'm really tired of talking about it, so I want to go on to something else. Because it's current, I'm going to use the gay marriage debate to explain exactly how both sides are acting in fear instead of standing for liberty. 
on one side you have people saying, oh my God, if we let gay people marry, maybe they'll be able to adopt kids. Like it, it wouldn't be better for a kid to be raised by you know, two gay guys than one person in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in the system, right? Okay? Like, do you know what, you know what life is like for kids in the system? Do you know what their propensity to end up committing crimes is? Okay? So even if it's not perfect, it's still better. Or then what if they let three people get married? Why do you give a shit? Okay? But, but it all comes down to, well, if we let this liberty exist, other liberties might exist that I also don't like. Okay? Don't worry, I'm going to get to the other side. So then we have people over here going, well, you won't make me a cake, I'll sue you. You'll make a cake for my gay wedding or I'll sue you. The state will fine you $100,000. Do you know what they're afraid of? They're afraid of, well, if, if you can tell somebody you won't make them a cake, maybe you'll tell them you won't serve them uh, dinner at a restaurant. So, so what? Do you guys that are upset about this understand that's the argument? Right, the ones that are like this Oregon couple was forced to make a cake or pay a hundred thirty-five thousand dollar fine or whatever. What they're saying is, if it's okay for you to say I won't make a cake for you because of your religious beliefs, then I could just as easily somebody walks into a diner, sits down, and I go, Hey, we don't serve white people here. Get out. Or we don't serve black people here. Get out. Or we don't serve people here who um, are of Native American descent or Hispanic descent. Get out. Right, and many of you that are very upset about the fact that this 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 baker is forced to make a cake or whatever would say, well, that's not okay though. Like the guy should be able to say because it's a religious issue and whatever, and they can get another cake somewhere else. We can get your egg, your plate of eggs or tacos somewhere else too. You don't have to come to my restaurant if I want to be a bigot and not serve you because you're black. You can find, I'm sure you can find somebody that'll serve you. But you'd go, well, that's that's the 1960s. That's not okay. Here's the thing. I think it. I I am consistent. And my ability to piss everybody off. I think it should be totally acceptable. It is not 1960 anymore. And by the way, all of that shit government caused. Okay? All of this stuff that we think government did to fix civil rights and all, government first caused it. Government enforced it and mandated it and caused the problem and then said, now we'll fix it. Okay? Letting the addict fix the drug problem is not a good idea, folks. But there was a problem, and I have to, we have, I have to admit, if we're honest, it is better today. And you know what? It is not 1960 anymore, and we have to stop pretending on both sides that it is. Those of us with a nostalgia for the America we've never been, and those of us with a fear of the America we used to be, we never were what some think we were, and we're definitely not today what think people think we still are. If you just said today, you know what? No more of this crap. No more. Freedom is freedom. If you don't want a customer for any reason, you don't have to take them. Now, here's my, here's my exception as long as there's still going to be a state in the mix. If it is a public service paid for with public money, then you will serve any and all because we all pay taxes. Okay, So that would not include a state function or a city function or a taxpayer-funded thing. And if your company has government customers... You also take all comers and shut the F up if you don't like it because people are paying for it with money taken from them without their consent. But I think any this is under the current system because, again, I would like to see no state in the future. That's what I'd love to see. But under our system, that's the minimum. And if your company is a private company that does not take any public money, you should be able to tell any customer anytime you want for any reason at all, to go shove it up their ass, and they should have no choice either than to go somewhere else or shove it up their ass. How simple would that be? 
But Jack, what about the racism? Today is 2015. If we did this, the market would fix this behavior like that. Because believe it or not, most people in business would like to stay in business. And what would happen is the court of public opinion would go, hmm, I see. And money would not or would go to people based on these decisions. And I believe in the vast majority it would be a poor business and poor financial decision to come out with these policies against certain groups of people. But the market should decide that, not the state. And a private business that doesn't take public money should be to do that all that they want to do. What's interesting is neither side of this debate seems very comfortable with that usually. It's, I want the government to interfere here and here in this way and in that way, but not here and here and in this way and that way. And what it really comes down to is when I think something should be a certain way, I'd like the state to interfere. When I don't think somebody should, something should be a certain way, I don't want the state to interfere. Or I do want the state to interfere to prevent it. Now, how can we declare independence with our head that screwed up as a nation? Liberty is liberty. Freedom is freedom. We don't have either one in this country. We have degrees of each. The, the, the saving grace of America is in this country. We do have more freedom and more ability to fight for freedom and to demand freedom than most nations that exist and have ever existed ever. And we're squandering it. We've squandered it because of cowardice, because of fear. Well, what if these other people do more of those things I don't like? Tough shit. What if, what if you were permitted to live your life your way, me my way, and other people their way, and until such time as one, one person hit another person, took another person's property, shoved another person down, refused to, to allow a person to pass, committed some form of aggression, everybody was told, just like when you were kids from your parents, shut up and get along. Shut up and get along. Tough. You don't like what he does? Don't look at it. You don't like what she does? Don't look at it. You don't like what he says? Don't listen to him. See, now that's a simple idea, isn't it? That's something you could declare independence underneath. That's something you could fight for liberty for, actual liberty. That's a simple idea. That every person has a right to live their life their way until such time as they interfere with the rights of another individual. And no one has any right to interfere with any other individual's rights, period, exclamation point, infinity symbol, until such time as that individual interferes with someone else's rights. And your rights aren't being interfered with because you are emotionally butthurt about what somebody else is doing, or you don't like it or don't think it should be that way. And guess what? You can have any religious belief you want. You can pray to any god you want. You can worship in any way that you choose. But you cannot use force to compel anybody else to participate with your belief system because it would infringe upon their liberty. Both parties in this country market a message very much like that to you, and they're both full of shit. And if you gravitate to either one, you're no longer qualified to declare liberty or fight for independence because you've ceased to comprehend the words and what they actually mean. Independence means I do as I please. I'm not dependent upon you, and you don't get to tell me how to live. Liberty means that that condition exists for everyone. That's how those two words go together. 
gee, why the hell wouldn't we teach kids that? We'll teach them about the Liberty Bell and the War of Independence, but we sure won't teach them the way the two words go together. Independence. I'm not dependent upon you, and you don't get to tell me how to live. Liberty is that conditioning is that condition exists for everyone until such time as they interfere with somebody else's liberty and independence. See, simple. And it leads to all types of behaviors that you don't like. Here's the clue. Those behaviors occur anyway. Do you get that? There's nothing you're going to do to stop people from in general behaving the way that they choose to. What you can do is use class warfare and monetary incentive and redistribution of wealth to make people behave unnaturally or worry about things that other people are doing that they normally wouldn't worry about because now you've taken their money and you funded it and they're outraged. They're outraged. Because the one thing that Democrat, the, the, the Republican, the Libertarian, the Socialist, the Communist, every member of the political spectrum can agree on in this country is there's something government does with money taken from their pocket that they find morally reprehensible. So the solution isn't for, well, stop doing the things I don't like with our money. Stop doing all the things. See to the, see to the business of the nation, which is the protection of individual liberties and rights. The valuing and understanding of a thing we call private property. Yes, it does exist. And a common defense from those that would come and interfere with those things. That's it. That's the only thing that we really need government for. Sounds good. Except most of you. And when I say most of you, I mean the whole country. The segment of society that listens to the show is relatively small compared to the whole. But most of the country would not vote for it. They would not accept it if it was handed to them on a silver platter. Because they're too busy worried about controlling something else because that's what you've been marketed to your entire life, that it's important to control other people. Freedom and liberty are something that we pay lip service today to, but we actually fear. We literally are cowards in the face of freedom. We are a people that today, if they will open the cage for us and open the door and show us where the door is and say, there is your freedom, we will run to the opposite corner and hang on to the bars when somebody tries to pull us out of our cage. And then get upset and angry if somebody says something bad about our country and that it's not a free country today. Here's the, here's the, here's the truth, guys. America is not a free country today. But the primary reason that it's not a free country is not because of our Constitution not being strong enough for the people or our government not following the Constitution or our government in general. Our nation is not free because we've so effectively been marketed to that we are a nation of people who fear liberty and therefore refuse to accept liberty when the opportunity arises. How the hell will we fight for liberty when we won't just take it when it's sitting right in front of us? If you think it makes me happy to say this, it doesn't. I say these things to jar you awake, to make you realize what liberty really is. To me... To me, I feel that liberty has become a hushed whisper in our society. But to those of us who still recognize it when we hear it, it might be a hushed whisper, but it's a beautiful symphony. It's something I really believe in. It's something that I really hold precious. 
There's a lot of behaviors that I think should be legal that I would never engage in. But I realize that if liberty is to exist for any, it must exist for all. I'll put a link to that article, but all it is is a propaganda piece for one side controlling the other side. And no one wants to actually seem to have a discussion. Where should we be just telling the state to not be involved at all rather than decide which government master gets to make the decision? See, here's the thing. I'm no more comfortable with the state of the, tex the state of Texas making a decision for me that I didn't ask them to make than I am with Washington, D.C. making a decision for me that I did not ask them to make, especially when I don't need them for either one of those functions. And it's funny that you think that your state would make the decision that you want them to make, when I promise you there's probably a lot of other places you're not happy with what they've done. And oh, by the way, just before we wrap this segment up, all of these people being fined for not baking a cake or taking pictures, etc., not a single one of them have anything to do with the recent Supreme Court decision. Not at all. Not a single one of them have been prosecuted or sued under federal law. All of them have been sued and prosecuted under the laws of the states in which they occurred. That's the truth. And if you can find me one that's been prosecuted under federal law, I'd like to know about it because I'd like to correct that error. But I don't believe it's an error. Everything that I've looked at, everything I've examined, everything I've checked into, one it's checked out as being legitimate and real, and yes, I find it reprehensible. I find that a couple would have their business shut down effectively to be fined into bankruptcy because they refused to bake a cake for someone. I find it to be morally morally detestable. But I find a lot of things morally detestable when it comes to government. The fact that anybody would tell anybody else who they have to do business with, I find disgusting and revolting. And again, it's not 1960. It's 2015. If a business wants to post a sign that makes it clear that that business is run by bigots who won't serve people because of the color of their skin or their religious beliefs or lack thereof or whatever, go ahead. Put yourself out of business, because I'll tell you this, I sure as hell trust the market more than I trust the government. Let's take another one. Uh, here's a pretty simple one. This is a question either for you or Nick on the Expert Council. How and when to propagate stevia? I live in the UK and got a small stevia plant this year and uh, that has love bin and a windowsill in a dining room. I've read there are hard plants to grow from seeds, so I wonder how and if I can propagate it. I've taken Nick's class and looking uh, at the plant, I was thinking it'd be okay as a greenwood cutting, but wondered if you had any extra advice. Thanks, Ross. Stevia is actually really easy to propagate from cutting. Uh, probably not quite as easy to propagate from cuttings as something like mint, but close. Uh, I'd say more to the level of like basil. Um, you can probably just take a jar uh, of, of just water and strip off all but four or five leaves of a, of a, of a good softwood cutting and float that in the jar, and that alone will probably be all that you would need to do uh, to get rooting going on. And once they're rooted, you can pot them and, and keep them in the same conditions as the other plants. Um, the other option would be to, uh, to go, go ahead and do a root hormone dip prior to putting in that jar, and, and that would work. If you wanted to have a little bit more uh, potential for success, uh, you know, you could do a misting system and all that, but for a few stevia plants, it's not really worth it. It would be a, a great plant to just get some pots and put them in a somewhat shady area where they get a little bit of filtered sunlight, moist soil, take your cuttings, strip off your leaves, dip them in dip and grow if you want to go ahead and use the rooting hormone, which will probably up your success rate. 
put them in the pot, cover the pot with a plastic bag to keep the humidity up. That's a humidity dome. Make sure it's a good moist but not soaking, soaping wet, wet, wet soil. You probably won't have to touch it. You'll probably have that plant start to take off. And once it starts to look like it's getting a little growth on it, go ahead and remove your humidity dome. By that point, you probably have some roots going down. And uh, you can either pot those up to larger pots and, and just keep them out of the direct sun until they adjust and start to grow. Uh, or you can leave that one pot just several sprigs grow in. But it's actually really easy to propagate, and it's not hard. I don't know why there's this mythology around stevia being difficult to propagate from seed. It's actually as easy to propagate from seed as just about any other herb. Um, it may come from people trying to propagate it outdoors in climates that aren't suitable to it. Of course, it is a tropical plant. Um, it grows pretty much in perpetuity. It's pretty much a perennial as long as it's not in a climate where it will freeze to the ground and die. And uh, due to that, it, it needs you know a, a, a climate that's more like your room temperature, not having wild swings. So it may be that people trying to plant it out in a garden that are direct sowing it are having problems. But uh, started out in in pots like any other herb in, in an environment where you could start and grow something uh, as simple to grow as basil or parsley, you should be able to grow stevia from seed as well. So that actually might be your easiest uh, choice in all of these is get a couple packets of seed and uh, pot up a bunch of them and, and go from there. But you can try all of those things. It's really not hard. Uh, the big thing is always with propagating plants from cuttings, uh, you want to keep from losing too much moisture, too much transpiration. So cutting your leaves in half that you leave on and reducing the total amount of leaf on the plant is a good way to do that. Keeping them moist and humid but not wet. Wet on a stem that's not yet got roots on it and can't pull most of that water up creates rot. Rot creates death. Okay, so, But other than that, I think the best thing that you can do across the board is just try. The bigger a plant gets, the more cuttings you can take. The more cuttings you take, the more chance you have of success. Play with it. Figure it out. Don't sweat it. Let's take another one. Um, I want to move back into a little bit more of the political arena, sort of, in a way. Just thinking about liberty and freedom and talking about what people do and get and don't get outraged about. So a bunch of hippies decided they were going to go burn flags this weekend. So a bunch of veterans went to the park in New York when they were going to burn the flag and prevented the hippies from burning the flags. And one guy ended up picking up a flag and smashing a hippie in the face with it and, and, and putting it out, etc. Um I'm not going to get into why that's assault and why you have to respect others' rights. I've spoken enough on it. I just want to point out that that was, that was what did it for these guys. Like, we'll let all kinds of other shit go. The government screws the people, whatever. But you know what? Some hippies are going to burn some flags, probably $5 flags made in China that were in a plastic bag just a few minutes ago before they brought them out here to do this. And if nobody paid attention to them, they wouldn't get what they wanted out of this and it would stop. But this is enough to motivate us. Where are people that are willing to commit acts of violence to simply stand and say, no, we're not going to let you do that today when something like this happens? This comes from Roswell on the, on the TSP forum. And uh, this is not theoretical. This is something really happening to somebody that really is part of this community and has been for a very long time. Um, Roswell here. First, thank you for all you do. I'm writing because the state of the state and city government have decided to confiscate part of my parents' land to put in a new road. I'll put the details below. But it's a glaring example of how government tyranny and theft at the point of a gun 
I'm not sure if anything can be done, but I think people need to know that this could happen to anyone. Detail. Sorry for the length, but as you can tell, I'm pretty pissed. My family has lived in their home for 30 years in Macon, Georgia, in a house that sits very close to the road. In fact, there have been two separate wrecks in their front yard, which if not for a tree, the cars would have hit their house. A few years back, the city wanted to create a four-lane road through Macon to connect the mall in North Macon to the more affluent side. Before construction even began, a second mall went up and a tornado hit the city and virtually destroyed the original mall. The old mall was devastated and vendors fled to the new mall. So the reason for the road became null and void. No need for the road to a mall that people don't go to. However, the road would be delayed for many years, but in the end would still proceed, despite the reason and common sense. The Department of Transportation representative came to my parents' house to tell them the news and make an offer on the land that they wanted. Predictably, they lowballed my parents' and gave them an insulting low fee at the same time, saying there would be significant damage caused to the house. <laughs> After refusing the insulting offer, my parents ended up lawyering up. They decided to just, con and then the city just condemned the land under intimate domain and took what they wanted. After destroying several trees, including the one that protected their house from wrecks in the past, they moved forward. The place looks like a war zone with half the yard ripped up, trees removed, and a telephone pole installed with guide wires stretching into the land they were allowed to keep. The new street will be eight feet from my parents' steps and 13 feet from their front door. In fact, it will be so close it will be a violation of city building codes. Should my parents wish to move from their home of 30 years, they will then need to obtain a variance from the city. Who caused the problem, by the way? Recently, Fox News interviewed my dad on the subject. They aired only two of the 20-minute interview, but you get a lot of the story here. There's a link I'll put in the show notes. One part that was left off the video is that due to how close the DOT is putting the road to their house, it will then be too close to the road based on city ordinance. Thus, they will be breaking their own law. Then if my parents was to shell, they would get a variance of the city to get around the ordinance. Basically, it's theft at the point of a gun. One could try to resist, but then the thugs in black suits, body armor, and rifles will show up and take one to jail if they refuse to allow it. Don't want to go to jail? That is where those rifles come. Threat by force. Then what is to stop the charlatans there? If they take an inch, why not a mile? Then why not the next person's land? Then the next person's. These parasites are criminal gangsters and nothing more. As a side note, not the, the person on the road on the board for Macon has a direct tie to the construction company contracted to do the work. Also, the mayor owns some land on the street and is hoping it will turn commercial criminal gangsters. Thanks for all you do, Jack and Liberty Roswell. Okay. Um, so you got some old people living on a street. We want your land. We don't want to sell your land. By the, by the way, what you're offering is preposterously low. Yeah, okay, fine. We're taking it anyway. America! Yeah! Land of the free? Really? Okay, this is happening all the time. Where are these people that are talking about proudly defending our country? By punching some stupid hippie in the face. Because that's easy. Why are you standing in front of somebody's house like this saying, you know what, we're not moving, guys. We're not moving. And law enforcement officers. Did it bother you? Did it bother you to hear that they will send thugs in black suits, body armor, and rifles to show up and take his parents to jail if they resist? But isn't that what happens? Would you? Would you do it? 
Would you say you have to? You have to follow orders? Or would you say, you know what, Chief? I'm sorry. My, I, I pulled a hamstring today. Can't help you. Because you don't think it's that simple? What if that happened? What if, what if you guys in law enforcement actually started paying attention to who you're sent after? Right? Well, what are we doing? Oh, well, we got to go get these people out of the house. Well, why? Because they want to put a road through. Yeah, my back hurts. I'm going to call my union official tell them you're trying to make me work when my back hurts. Right? I'm giving you an order. You're ordering me to work while my back hurts? By the way, Sipowitz's back hurts, too. He already told me. I couldn't do this. You guys in law enforcement, I want to hear from you. Who would do this and then say you had no choice? Who would be willing to act on behalf of the state or the city and take a gun and force old people to let someone tear their property apart and wants to justify that as being okay? Who's outraged when a hippie burns the flag, but not equally outraged? Or Like, isn't this a lot more of an outrageous thing? Some guy goes to a store, spends his own money to buy a piece of cloth made in China that happens to be formatted in the way that we call the American flag, burns his flag with his own matches, and essentially has no victim except those that are emotionally hurt over it. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's a good thing to do. I'm just saying in the end, that's what happens. And somebody will go physically intervene with that. But these people have their property stolen from them by a corrupt government, and no one stands. And the only people that will show up with guns, the only people that will show up with force, are the state itself, or the city itself. And I'm going I'm to say again, you guys in law enforcement, there's a place where you can stand passively and say, I can't do that. Can't do it. Let them fire you for it. Get the whole department together, get one really good lawyer, and, 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 and put your own police department out of business. They could pay you for the rest of your life to not work, because they were stupid. Isn't there a point where we have to say, this is what's really wrong? These people lived here. Oh, and by the way, I'm sure paid their taxes to live here for 30 years. This is all they wanted. This is their American dream. Because somebody else wanted it, and could, they took it. Land of the free? Home of the brave? What freedom are we going to celebrate in this little occurrence? How brave are the city officials who will shit on an elderly couple because it's what they wanted? Yeah. We're not qualified as a nation to declare independence today because things like this happen. This is not isolated. There's a hell of a lot more of this happening than people being forced to bake cakes, folks. Why don't you hear about it? Why will the media give this two minutes of play and then bury it under another story and you'll forget? Like, like we did something, but we didn't. Because it doesn't meet anybody's agenda. This doesn't help the state. This story doesn't help the state. We're a sick people that live in a nation that have this go on and then we'll turn around and, and, and say we're free. And I don't know what to tell you to do about this type of thing. I, I, I do think it might be useful if, like, whenever this happened, there were just 10,000 people sitting there. Now you, can, you can say whatever you want about the hippies and the Occupy movement. 
But in general, their, their entire method of protesting was just to occupy a space and not move. Not to riot or hit anybody or shoot at anybody. They're pretty pacifist-type guys. What if we said no more? You don't get to do this to people anymore. This is not acceptable. But we won't. We're not ready to do it yet. That's the truth. Our nation's not ready to stand in the face of, of this simple tyranny at this point. And, and please, nobody be stupid and go do it alone. See, that's the thing about this type of thing. They, they want you to get mad, to get angry, and two or three of you to go out there and armor up or some shit and say, we're not going to let you do this today. Because then they'll just bring in ten guys, well-armed, well-trained, who'll just thump the shit out of you, spray the shit out of you, tase the shit out of you, have a dog bite the shit out of you and take you to jail. And you know what? The guys that do it, they'll say, we didn't have any choice. This wasn't an old couple. This was three militant nuts. Who knows what they would have done next? They'll justify it. No one wants to lose their job. But if 2,000 people sat in the yard of every home they ever tried to do this to, we'd put an end to this shit in a year. And until we can agree enough as a people to be willing to take a stand for something this simple, the nation is lost. It remains in the hearts of men and women that remember why it was supposed to be here in the first place. The America that you love does exist. It's an idea. It's not a reality. And all we can do is keep working towards the idea. And get enough cohesion and enough agreement to be able to stand for simple things once again. So that's the thing. We can't even stand for the most simple things together anymore. People will actually turn this occurrence into something political. Democrats blaming Republicans and Republicans blaming Democrats. This isn't a Democrat issue. This isn't a Republican issue, which, by the way, the Republicans are far stronger in a four position for eminent domain at the political level. But this is not a political issue. This is, do you have a right to your own property that you've paid for and paid taxes on in the United States of America? Yes or no? Yes or no? That's it. That's the whole question. Yes or no? It's complicated. No, it's not. No, it's not. It is not complicated at all. It's very simple. But it, the people cannot line up, look at the person and say, you and I differ on so many things. We list 20 political things that we differ on, and we're both opposed to each other. But we're not opposed on this. Let's stand together on this. Our nation has nothing until we can become that nation. That's our first step on the way back. To be able to look at the person that's diametrically opposed to you politically on 90% of the issues and go, this is the one we agree on. You know why we don't do it? We're afraid it'll strengthen our positions where we disagree. And again, we're acting in fear. We're acting in fear. I wish I could fix this for these people. I mean, at this point, it's too late. They've already torn everything up. But even if it wasn't, I'm a realist. I'm not going to 
haul ass over there in my Ford truck and, and try to stand off John Law alone? This is another place, maybe this is another place for leaderless organizations. You know, I've talked about putting some together, and it's probably going to be some projects that are going to wait till I get back from, from vacation. But see, the problem with even 10,000 people, well, if one person got them all there, we'll just take out the head. We, we, we scare the shit out of everybody else. Everybody else puts their tail between their legs and runs home. If we ended up in a position with common ideals, including nonviolence, nonviolence, refuse to use violence, But a couple thousand people sitting on everybody's parking lot or, or house or yard every time the state tries to take land. And all of a sudden, the media will cover it. Because they know you care. And they care about you caring. Because that's how they make money. And all of a sudden, the question would become prominent in people's minds. Should the government be allowed to do this? And I bet you at least 80% of the people in this country would say, hell no. Hell no. 80%. 80%. I think that number is low. I'm being conservative. 80% would say the government should not be able to do this. You can get anything done with 80% of consensus. <laughs> Why don't they have any discussion about these things? Why, when eminent domain does come up, does it remain a completely political, etherical, not attached to any reality discussion? About the benefits and the detriments and, you know, progress needing to be made and well, what ifs, you know, we needed to, to feed a hundred people or a thousand people or ten thousand people and we can't because we can't do what we need to do to be able to do that because one person is unreasonable. That's not what's going on here. What if you want to build a road? You want your construction kickbacks from the guy that you're friends with and you own some land there yourself. You want to be able to get it all zoned commercial so you can make a bunch of money. That's what this is about. This is typical Southern politics. Corrupt, small-town Southern politics. It's just as bad here as it is in Chicago, folks. But here's the clue. It's because we let them do it. Let's take another one. Here's a question for you guys. Have you forgotten about the dire financial straits the entire world's in, including our own country? Um, and maybe we should pay attention to this a little bit. Uh, I want to give you a story that came in from Patrick and this is uh, Patrick, this might be the Patrick that's behind defining the machine I think that's who this is, and I'll say the last name in case I'm wrong anyway, uh, Puerto Rico Governor Warms public debt is not payable uh, what? Puerto Rico's governor says their public debt is not payable we don't have the money, we can't pay you, let me read the article to you this is on Fox News Puerto Rico's governor believes the U.S. territory will not be able to pay back its $72 billion public debt, a spokesperson told the Associated Press last Sunday. Governor Alejandro Garcia Padilla, spokesman Jesus Manuel Ortiz, confirmed that the island's government is seeking to defer payments while negotiating with creditors. He confirmed comments by Garcia that appeared in a report in the New York Times published in late Sunday, less than a day before Garcia is scheduled to deliver a public address amid debate on the $9.8 billion budget that calls for $670 million in cuts and sets aside $1.5 billion to help pay off the debt. The budget has to be approved by Tuesday. Quote, there is no other option. I would love to have an easier option. This is not politics. This is math, Garcia is quoted as saying in the Times. The island's debt figure is four times that of Detroit, according to the Washington Post. 
Puerto Rico's bonds were popular with U.S. mutual funds because they were tax-free, but hedge funds and distressed debt buyers have been stepping up to buy up the debt as the island's economy worsened and its credit rating dropped. Puerto Rico's constitution dictates that the debt has to be paid before any other financial obligations are met. If Garcia seeks not to pay the debt at all, it will require a referendum and a vote on a constitutional amendment, said Representative Jennifer Gonzalez, spokeswoman for the main opposition party. She said in a phone interview that she was taken aback by Garcia's comments, which came out just hours before he was scheduled to meet with legislators. She's taken aback because he told the truth, I guess. See, politicians don't, it doesn't matter what country you're in, doesn't matter what territory you're in, they're all the same. I can't believe the other person said the truth. This is not politics, this is math. Now, understand something. No one's sitting there saying to Puerto Rico, we want $72 billion now, please. What they're saying is, your interest payments, your total payments, just like your mortgage payment are due, and this is how much you owe. You owe us $1.5 billion this year. That's your service payment on the debt. And Puerto Rico's like, well, gee, like running our country and paying the debt at the same time? Can't do it. Don't have the money. And the creditor's like, well, you better go cut some other shit. And the, the, the island nation's like, we don't really have enough money to pay this, period. We, we can't find the cuts to pay the bill. Well, the creditors are like, well, you're damn well going to do it. And the, the governor, who would be, you know, Puerto Rico's not a country. It's really a, a territory. It's like a state, but has a little bit more sovereignty than even a state, I would say, in some ways, and less than some others. Um, says, well, you're screwed. We don't have it. We don't have it. There's things we can't cut, non-discretionary spending, uh, and we can't have you know no police force or something like that going on. Have you seen the crime statistics here? So we don't have your money. So you're just going to have to cut a deal with us. Not that much different than what's going on in, in Greece, except that Greece has created a much bigger problem for themselves with a lot more money involved, with a lot more social programs. I mean, Greece has been living high off somebody else's hog for a long time. The problem is that people think, well, look at Puerto Rico. Look what they've done to themselves. Or look at Detroit. Look what Detroit's done to itself. Look, look at Greece. Look what Greece has done to Yeah, they have. But these are cities, territories, and another nation without the ability to print its own money. Okay? So all you're seeing is the reality hit home for them before the chickens come home to roost for the rest of us. There is a multi-trillion dollar series of time bombs out there in municipal debt right now. These are, these are financial weapons of mass destruction is what they are. It is only a matter of time before a city like Los Angeles ends up in this. And what you're going to see is calls to bail out Puerto Rico. The United States is going to say, we have to do this. It's only a billion and a half dollars. Now, I want you to think about that, right? Like, they need a billion and a half to help pay off the debt. A billion. Sounds like a lot of money, and it is for the rest of us, but in, in, a, in a government that, that measures its deficits in trillions of dollars, it's a billion bucks to Puerto Rico. This is the trap. This is the trap, though. Our government knows full well the road that we're on. And how many places can you bail out before you can't bail people out anymore? How many can you bail out before you yourself need a bailout? And how can you justify to the American taxpayer people bailing out Puerto Rico, which is a territory, not a state, 
while people in North Carolina, which is a state, are hungry. This is, again, it, it's something that people will get way too deep into without understanding it's just larger ramifications for everybody. This is something we are all going to have to face. And, and I mean, honestly, the entire debt of Puerto Rico right now is $72 billion dollars. Do you know? Do you know what the debt, the public debt of the state of New York is? Three hundred and sixty-eight billion and change. Three hundred sixty-eight billion and change. Y you got to start thinking about this a little bit broader. What about California? <laughs> California's public debt: four hundred twenty-seven billion dollars. Four hundred twenty-seven billion. That's what California owes. Um, and, and by the way, that number just keeps going up and up and up. They owe $427 billion, and this year they're spending $430 billion. They're spending more than they owe already. Talk about deficits. Texas owes $297 billion. So when we look at California, New York, and Texas, and the debt that they have versus the debt that Puerto Rico has, they, they all dwarf Puerto Rico's debt. So what's the problem? The problem is Puerto Rico can't pay its bills. That's the problem. And that's so now we have to start extrapolating from this. If Texas owes close to 300 billion, if California owns close to 400 billion and New York owes like 500 billion. What happens when they can't pay their bills? Isn't it a bigger problem? And what does the fact that they can service their debt at these levels lead to? Well, it leads to more debt and more debt and more debt. See, as long as a place can keep borrowing enough money to make up the difference of what they don't have, to continue to buy what they want to buy, pay what they want to pay, and service their debt, there's no problem. There's a word for all of this. Do you know what that word is? It's actually a phrase. Ponzi scheme. The monetary system of the modern world is a sophisticated Ponzi scheme. And it's actually so simple that it repels your mind as to how it works. Debt is money. You notice that I picked three of the wealthiest states, and is it shocking that they have such huge amounts of debt? Let, let, let's pick a poor, a poor state, a state that you think would go deeper in debt, just at random. What's a state that's not financially at the level of California or Texas or New York? How about Arkansas? No insulting you if you live there, but Arkansas is not really a wealthy state or a large GDP state. Let's see what Arkansas's debt is. Huh. Now, isn't that funny? Arkansas's entire public debt is only $12 billion. $12 billion. I mean, pff, that's not even a fighter. One of these really expensive fighter jets. I mean, we, come on. Think about this. Why does Arkansas have such small debt compared to Texas or New York or Florida, Illinois? Is it because Arkansas manages their money better? It's because they have less money. Money and debt equal each other in our society. The only way to have more money in our modern financial system is to have more debt. And it works right up until the point where you can't service the debt any longer. And that's what you're seeing is cities like Chicago and Detroit, U.S. territories like Puerto Rico, sovereign nations like Greece, reaching that point when they can't service their debt anymore. And the entire system is run the exact same way. 
So it doesn't matter if you're that small like Arkansas is $12 billion dollars, or big like Texas of $300 million dollars, or somewhat big like Puerto Rico's of you know $87 billion dollars, or $90 billion dollar range. You know, Greece's debt is $192 billion dollars. For all of the, the, the wailing and gnashing in teeth and the whole, you know, world could go into recession over this, Greece owes less money than the state of Texas, the state of Illinois, the, the state of New York, the state of California. The problem is only that they can't pay the bill. This is a harsh reality that I don't think most people want to look at. But they owe $192 billion dollars in a nation that only has 11 million people. <sighs> um, and there's a lot of other nations, if you start to look at what they owe in their population, you realize there's a problem here. You know, uh, Germany is being reported to be the big victim here. They're the ones that loaned Greece the majority of the money and gave them multiple bailouts and, and what have you. Uh, Greece, uh, I mean, Germany has a population of about 80 million. But they're the financially responsible nation, Greece is. I mean, uh, Germany is, right? They owe $3.19 trillion. $3.19 trillion. All of this is a giant Ponzi scheme moving around that, that moves wealth toward the big players. And the more money you owe, the more money you have. Because the, <laughs> the United States is the richest nation in the world. Well, we owe $17.4 trillion. So who can pay their debt right now? What country, what state, what U.S. territory could pay back their full debt right now? The answer is no one. It's only can you service your debt. There's no plan to pay the debt back. There's no plan for the debt to ever go down. So if the debt always goes up and you can't ever pay it back, What's the eventual result? The eventual result is at some point, reality has to take over inflated fake optimism. And the whole thing has to have a giant reset button pushed. And let me tell you, that's what they will do. They will reset the whole global financial machine. And when this country does, everybody else has to do it because <laughs> we're the one holding all the debt. 17 trillion dollars worth of it. If we wanted to bail out Puerto Rico, how hard would it really be to do? Why won't we do it? Let's not get into the reasons we won't do it. Why would you say it would be a bad idea to do it? As a logical, calm, normal person, why, a nation that already is carrying 17 trillion dollars of debt, To just pick up a, even just, just, just to make their interest payment for this year and their interest in principal payment for this year. Just, just get them vital next year. 1.5 billion. Here's a check. It, it will not change the temperature of the water in anybody's pool in this country. Ever. There'll be no immediate consequences to this nation. And whenever we can't pay our bills, a billion dollars isn't going to help. It'll be chump change compared to the problem. 
because they'll come back and want more and they'll do it again. And you don't fix problems for people that get themselves into this type of problem. You don't pay off your, your, your brother-in-law's, you know, gambling debts as long as he's, you know, still gambling. You know, and still on dope. You say, when you get yourself into rehab, we'll look at trying to help you get back on your feet. But as long as you're engaged in this behavior, I can't fix it for you because I'll just make it worse. Says every addict ever, I don't have a problem. The whole global economy is addicted to debt because we've convinced ourselves that debt is money. And in our system, debt is money. Sooner or later, we're going to pay for all this. And when you look at Greece or you look at Puerto Rico, don't think, oh, my God, now it's going to happen. That's not how it works. Trust me. When everything goes to shit, most people will be convinced that everything is finally okay. Let's take one more before we wrap up today. All right, last up today is uh, an article with uh, a video that I'm going to play the audio of from a listener named Tim. Uh, this is called The War on Big Food, and my response is, yeah, not so much, and it's not quite as it's presented. But before I give you my analysis of this, I'd like to thank Tim for sending this article in, and I will now play for you the audio on it, come back and wrap up for today with my thoughts on it. Packaged good companies have always played in the middle of the supermarket. What we're seeing now is that shoppers are shifting more and more to the perimeter of the store. That's where the fruits, the vegetables, the proteins sit. They're saying, you know what, if I want to eat healthy, I'm going to shop fresh. I know fresh is around the perimeter of the store. That's really hurting some of these packaged good players that don't have a presence in the outer aisles of the store. In response, we're seeing that some of these big packaged good companies are moving as much as possible some of their products to the perimeter of the store by buying up smaller natural food companies. So Campbell's, for example, recently a couple years ago acquired Bolt House. They sell the bottled juices, but they actually sit in the perimeter of the store. So Campbell's can therefore have a presence in this hot area with consumers. I think we are going to see a real evolution take place, both from a retail perspective in the supermarket, but also with some of these big legacy companies. I think that they know that this is not any sort of fad. This is a real shift in consumer habits and behaviors. They're going to continue to remake their portfolios and their products if they have to. They know that if they don't, that the future is not looking bright for them. Okay, so let's start out with the good news. The good news is that people are finally starting to wake up to the reality of how terrible the quality of food is from a nutrient standpoint in America today. How how bad it is that we're shoving high fructose corn syrup into our children to a point where it's making up a significant portion of the calories they consume every day. I want you to just think about that. Regardless of whether you, you know, you like GMOs or, or you hate them, that doesn't really matter. When you look at the dietary intake of people in this country today and you look at the percentage of calories in processed food and where they come from, 20 to 30% of our caloric intake is in the form of sugar, highly concentrated sugar extracted from corn. I don't care if it's highly sugar, highly, uh, high, high sugar, uh, highly intensified sugar extracted from freaking peas or sugar cane or beets. It doesn't matter. It's still pure sugar. And carbohydrates are bad enough in and of themselves, the quantity of that that we consume, but this is sugar. 
you look at certain things and go, why do they even have sugar in this? You can't really taste sugar in it. It's to boost the caloric count cheaply. That's why. And then they put a little label on there that tells you how bad it is for you, and they know nobody really pays attention or reads that stuff, or do they? Are they starting to pay attention? Are they starting to read this stuff? So it's good because of that. Here's the two things that make it not as good as you might expect it to be. The first thing is, what is a major problem for a company the size of Nabisco, or Nestle, or Kellogg, or Tyson? What What constitutes a major problem? The, the article, again, is called, called The War on Big Food. Yeah, not so much. What is a catastrophe for a company of this size? I'll tell you what a catastrophe is. 2% decline in retail. 2%. That's still a metric shit ton of terrible quality food being shoved down the mouths of future type 2 diabetics across their country every day. Let me tell you something, though. It's even worse than that. If the company forecasts 10% growth next year and they get six, it is an ever-loving disaster in a system that demands perpetual growth of large corporations for the system to continue to run the way that it is. So that's the first thing is the problem is not nearly as big And the movement is not nearly as big as you would be led to believe by this article, by the little video that goes with it, or by the reaction from the mega giant corporations in response to it. It doesn't need to be big in percentage to be huge in numbers and to adversely affect something like a quarterly earnings report. And that's what these companies do. These companies don't feed America. They make money. And when they don't make enough money, bad shit happens for the people that run them. And that's the driving force. They don't care. They don't do what they do to make you sick. They do what they do to make money, and they don't care if it makes you sick. And then the same corporate giants that own the other corporate giants also own the ones that provide you drugs for your illness. So in the end, they really don't care because they make money on both sides of your illness by causing it and by treating it. Noted, I didn't notice I didn't say curing it. Okay, so not as big as you would think. Here's the other problem. What is their solution? Consumers are finally listening to those of us who have said <clears throat> for a very long time, shop the perimeter of the grocery store and doing it. So the problem to the major manufacturers, and this is how corporate people think, is not we make shit quality food. It's we don't have the real estate in the hot section of the market. So we need that real estate. So since making a new product and getting it in there is hard, what I'll do is find a company that already has that little spot, buy them because they're shit to me. They literally are shit to me in numbers. I can you know, wipe my ass with a couple stock options and buy out this company. I'll get their, their real estate position, and I have control over it, and I can start changing what products go in that rock rack through my representatives that are handling the merchandising, my, my, my vendor reps. See, that's what this is about. This is how do we get control of that space? And then... Then we can transition it to whatever product offering we want as long as it sort of fits. Okay? You have to, you have to like really understand the mind of these people to get how insidious this is. Right? And I do because I work for a company that wasn't anywhere near as big as these people, but a $500 million company selling test equipment. 
managing a quarter of the United States and the biggest quarter of the United States for them, I got to see how the corporate people, not just in our own company, but the corporate masters from Danaher, the billion-dollar conglomerate at the top, how they thought. When there was a problem, it was never, okay, well, let's understand that our customer says our product has not been innovated sufficiently to keep up with market demand. We've continued to raise the price without increasing the quality, and our service on a product that's been broken and needs to be repaired sucks, and the interface isn't user-friendly enough. No, 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 no. That's not how we're going to fix the problem with not getting the growth we're demanding. What we'll do is we'll buy another company that has merchandising space at our resellers, We can make some other garbage products that will be overpriced because they have their name on them, have that retail space controlled, and put our product in there, and we don't care where we get the growth, just that we get the growth. That's exactly what I saw. That was exactly the mentality that I saw, and it sickened me, and that's part of why I didn't want to be there anymore. Well, you're talking billions versus hundreds of billions. That's a tiny company compared to, to, to you know these, these multinational food producers. That's the model they're on. Let's acquire the better real estate. Now, the, 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 the still the little bit of a win here is you won't be able to put powdered macaroni and cheese in that space. You'll have to develop products and product sets that fit that space. And what you might start to see is the perimeters of your grocery stores get fatter, and that might make America a little bit thinner. Here's the issue, though. With the, the, you know, how bad did this really hurt big food? Well, you've got in your perimeter, usually when you go in a grocery store, I don't know if you've noticed this, but most grocery stores, you go to your left into produce. Some you go to your right, but most you go to your left. And then that leads you through like your, your deli and stuff like that. And then back into like your packaged meats and then your, your deli meats where they're cut. And then where your cut meats are put out for display. And then you get into like your dairy case and your juices and your butters and your eggs. And then you come back up the other side. And then everything in the, or it goes the other way. And it's usually exactly that order in the other direction if it goes the other way. And, and everything in the middle is consumer goods, your, you know, light bulbs and stuff like that. Your cereals, your granola bars, your cookies, your cakes, your seasoning, your mixes, your flours, and all that stuff is in the center. Okay, How much of that perimeter really isn't big food? All the vegetables and stuff like that are part of huge warehouses and all, but yet that stuff does have to be grown. It's not held in a silo. It has to be grown, produced, picked, and shipped, and it is fresh. Even if it's got toxins on it, it is. Okay, then you've got all your juices and stuff like that that are part of like the produce area. Your your uh, your higher quality salad dressings are usually over there and all. These are these small companies that have carved out a niche. Now the big giant blob in the center is just buying them. Okay, now we move across the back. So you've got your your your, your like your um, your your, your uh, bakery. Right, your bakeries and your delis there. Well, all of that food that's in the deli, all those meats and stuff like that, they're all from big giant companies, Boar's Head and whatnot. Right? That the guy puts on a slicer, but at least there's some human interaction there, and it is meat. But all that stuff comes from feedlot animals. Very little of it's really high-end meat in your average grocery store. There's some, but not much. And then you get into your bakery. Well, it's all freaking pre-mixed and stuff now. They dump it in. It's fructose syrup in the frosting that they put on your gay wedding cake or whatever. So that's still all big food in there. Then you get into like your packaged meats, you know, your Ecris sausages, your, your, your black label Hormel bacon. It's still all big food. 
right? And then you get over to like your deli case where they have the seafood and all, and that's all through great big giant sellers. Okay, there's no local food there. There might be a little bit here and there because they know it's a good buzzword. And then you get into your meat case where your you know your steak and all is there. They don't even cut the meat usually anymore at the at the uh, at the grocery stores. They might do some grinding and all, but they don't cut, even do much of the cutting anymore. It already comes in pre-cut, so that's all wrapped up in cellophane. And so that's all big food. That's all off KFOs. <laughs> I mean, then you get into dairy. It's all big giant dairies, huge corporations. RGBH in your milk, yay! Right, you get your your, your coffee mate, mate and stuff like that. That's all big food. You, you you cruise around the side there. You get to where your butter and your eggs are. If you notice, there's a rationing on eggs now because the chickens all have bird flu. It took 60 days to actually hit. That's because the eggs were 60 days in the system before they got there, and now the the, the basketballs come through the pipeline, so to speak, a reverse basketball. Empty space popped out. Right? That's all big food. What's right next to it? The whole freezer section. That's all big food. How much in a grocery store isn't big food? How much in a big, in a grocery store isn't? Now, there's no doubt the overall choice for your health is more positive around the perimeter. So what this is is big food selling to you that they're in trouble and they're addressing your concerns and they understand that you're in the perimeter of the grocery store, and they're going to make more effort to get more product to fit there. They own the whole damn thing already. It's a division difference. It's not big food versus small food. It's a division. It's the division of peppers and tomatoes and cucumbers versus the division of powdered shit in a pouch. And they're not in any trouble. And all they, all this is, this is leading up toward, I'm telling you right now where this trend is leading. The grocery store of today is going away through automation and pre-orders, etc. And a whole new shit ton of marketing is coming with it. Healthy this, natural that, does not contain this, fortified with that. A whole new rash of marketing convincing you the same old shitty food is now healthy because it has a picture of a barn on it. That's what's next. Because they're not going to stop corn subsidies, and that means they're not going to stop putting fructose corn syrup into your food, and there will be a whole new litany of lobbying going on over the next six to eight years to get more and more terms that are currently not allowed to be used, allowed to be used, or controlled under the guise of protecting you so that only they can use them that don't mean what they say they mean when they put it on a label and you buy it and feed it to your kids. This is all marketing. I would bet Big Food is actually behind the Fortune.com article because they are getting hit. But let me tell you something. Big Food doesn't care if you spend more money on Tyson chicken breasts versus the frozen pre-breaded Tyson chicken breasts. They don't care as long as you buy Tyson. So the fact that you moved your shopping from the freezer section to the cold meat section, they don't give the square root of F all about... But they do care when you don't go to that grocery store at all. Or when all of a sudden you start buying your meat from local producers that never send their animals to the cave forward to the feedlot. Now they care. So what they'll do is create the illusion that non-big food even exists at the supermarket. 
and that they care and they're trying to more address your needs by moving to that thickening border that will get thicker and thicker and thicker. And boy, just think about it. When the average consumers point click in ordering all their food online and they just show up at the supermarket to pick it up in some boxes, it was all put in by a robot like they have at Amazon.com as a pick system, which is where your supermarkets are headed to soon. There's all kinds of opportunities to put all kinds of pictures next to all kinds of food to make it look healthy and safe and natural. If it don't look like food, it ain't food. And if you have to wash it to get anything off it other than dirt, you can't get what you want off of it off of it. When it comes to protecting your health, those are two things that I think we should all start to realize. If it doesn't look like food, it's not food. Okay? If it doesn't look like food, it's not food. And a lot of stuff we buy in the grocery store doesn't look like food. If the ingredients on it don't sound like food, it's not food. But the bigger thing is... If you have a big, beautiful, clean green pepper that you just got from the store, and they say, make sure you wash it first. I'm not saying you shouldn't wash it, but I am saying whatever's on it, most of it's not coming off no matter how much you wash it. I wash the food that comes off my property because it has dirt on it. You wash the food that comes from the grocery store. Because it's been soaked in poisons and toxins. But yeah, big food's hurting. Big food's not hurting. Big food's not hurting. A new marketing push is coming. America has begun to embrace the concept, not the practice, but the concept of local, more natural, healthier food. And big food is more than willing to give you a marketing message to go along with it. What does that remind us of, boys and girls? Who's always willing to give us the marketing message we want to hear when it's time to vote our government? Could it just be that the reason the system's the same everywhere is the same people are in charge everywhere? I'll leave that one up to you. But I will tell you this. If you think big food is on the ropes, they're not. They're not. They're afraid that they will be. They're afraid that you actually will take your business outside of the building, not just to the outside of the aisles. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.